0: the story of a six-year-old boy who is allergic to nearly all foods it's a rare medical condition at first he could eat only one food it's
1: hard not like you see everyone and you feel like left out kind of and you still you can't eat the same foods as everyone why do we need GMOs at all
2: guys this is a great story this week a 12 year old girl was able to do something she had never been able to do before she was able to dig in to her Thanksgiving meal without any fear
0: It is estimated that 32 million Americans and hundreds of millions more worldwide suffer from food allergies or intolerances. Every three minutes in the United States, an allergic reaction to food sends someone to the emergency room. Today, we explore what life is like when you must avoid certain foods. But we also learn that there is hope for an escape from the food prison. Researchers are using biotechnology to make foods safer for those living with allergies and food sensitivities. Cutting-edge tools like genetic engineering are evolving the concept of food as medicine. I'm Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you're listening to I Am Bio.
2: My name is Emily Brown, and I'm the founder and CEO of Food Equality Initiative. So I personally do not have food allergies, but I have two daughters that have multiple food allergies. They are both allergic to peanuts and tree nuts. What's unique about them, I think, is that not only do they affect the patient who is diagnosed, but definitely has a significant impact on the entire family. So definitely my children, we're all concerned about the things that they eat. We read food labels meticulously, making sure there are no traces of peanuts or tree nuts in any of their food. We're very cautious with bakery items. We don't buy bakery goods that are, you know, potentially cross-contaminated with peanuts and tree nuts. And of course, for young children, this this is a challenge or can be a challenge with birthday parties and schools and celebrations. You know, they just want to feel normal like everyone else and not have to think about something before they they eat a cupcake. And so they're reading all the labels, being very careful. I know initially when we were diagnosed, we did not go to church potlucks or anything. We were very insular for, you know, really the first few years. But we've been able to, with a lot of training and a lot of safety ground rules put in place, we've been able to become more social. But things like restaurants are still hard and it can be a challenge. It's really the social, psychological impact that I think has been the the most difficult
0: It's difficult to keep my own daughter on a steady, nutritious diet, even without food allergies. For Emily and other parents that have to consider allergies to peanuts, wheat, or dairy, the job becomes even harder.
3: You can go gluten-free or peanut-free. Yes, of course, we can do that. But this is a very difficult and challenging life.
0: That's Sachin Rustagi. He's an assistant professor of molecular breeding at Clemson University's College of Agriculture. Sachin's team has been researching both wheat and peanuts, which are two of the crops that cause some of the most common allergies. He shared with us why these foods trigger such a strong reaction in some people.
3: So wheat, actually sensitivity, I will say like is much more complicated. So it is three different kinds of reactions that uh, human experiences upon consumption. So, and that is only happening, like not in every individual, but the people who are sensitive Uh, and they carry genetics for that. Like, so and not necessarily that genetics will play out from the very beginning. It could happen later during the life with the changes in the gut microbiota. Like, so our gut is full of like microbiome. And when that changes, it could actually trigger the reactions to the wheat proteins so the reactions that we experience are actually wheat allergies the second one is actually called celiac disease or wheat intolerance like so they cannot completely tolerate like wheat and it's a very chronic reaction to the thing that slowly uh, increase with time like and it, it's a autoimmune disorder so it's very complicated and then the third reaction is actually less well understood at the moment and which is called also wheat sensitivity. Earlier, it used to be called gluten sensitivity. So gluten is the protein that causes the problems or trigger these reactions in human body. But now it was revised to wheat because not necessarily the proteins. There are other elements in the wheat grain uh, which are non-protein and also cause like this sort of problem. So it's largely the proteins that are responsible for the reactions. Peanut has like pretty much the similar scene. Peanut does not have like that many different reactions in the human being. So there is one set like that is, we all know, like it is peanut allergy. And the intensity of this allergy could vary in different individuals. Some individuals are highly sensitive to peanuts. Even like a peanut dust can cause uh, severe reactions. The thing is that, uh, uh, again, like the culprit is the peanut proteins. And there are 16 different proteins in a peanut grain that cause these allergies. Out of those, there are actually four proteins that are known as the major allergens. So about 50% of the population that is so far tested actually respond to those proteins. So that's what we were targeting. So we were targeting to eliminate those proteins. So the plant does not produce those major allergens. And that way we can minimize or reduce the allergenic potential of these grains so if in case somebody is exposed accidentally with these grains there won't be that severe a reaction so that is the idea
1: My name is Lisa Gable. I am the CEO of FAIR. FAIR is the world's largest NGO and private funder of food allergy research and advocacy. And our focus is working towards a future free of food allergies and intolerances.
0: Lisa joined BIO's Vice President for Agriculture and Environment, Sarah Gallo, to talk about the challenges of living with food allergies.
4: Can you share some data on how many people are living with allergies in the U.S., or if you have a sense of globally, just what the scale is of how many individuals are are living through that? Sure. Food allergy and
1: intolerance to one of the top nine food allergens affects the purchasing decisions of 85 million Americans. It also affects individuals, part of that 85 million or 32 million people who live with potentially life-threatening food allergies. That means through the accidental ingestion of food that they could possibly die. The rest of the individuals in the 85 million are people with food intolerances or individuals who live with those who do. For people who are listening, let me give you the list of the top nine because that's always a question that people ask. It's milk, wheat, soy, egg,
4: peanut, tree nut, fish, shellfish, and sesame. That is quite a few things. Thanks for sharing. That was going to be one of my questions. So I'm really glad to know sort of the, the scope of what we're talking about and where most people's um, allergens fall. And this is something that I think even I myself get confused about sometimes. Um, what is the difference between sensitivities and allergens? Sure. It's a point of confusion for a lot of people. And so today I'm actually going to give a plug for a
1: new book that was launched yesterday by Dr. Ruchi Gupta, and it's called Food Without Fear. And the reason that I mention it is that it really speaks to this question that so many people are asking. It talks about a spectrum of ailments with tricky masqueraders uh, that create a lot of confusion and possibly misdiagnosis and sort of faulty and poor treatment. What she talks about is that an individual may have food-related conditions which result in stomach pain, diarrhea, hives, other types of ways that their immune system is acting up. But a life-threatening food allergy is when someone has at least two of the body systems shut down with potentially plunging drops in blood pressure. And that's where it gets into being a life-threatening allergy where you need to immediately
4: administer epinephrine and take someone to the hospital. So you talked a little bit there about the effects of people with allergies and and what would happen if they were to ingest or consume food that would bother them. But I think there's probably some other kind of quality of life issues that surround individuals. And I really appreciate that you mentioned others that live with people that have allergies. So can you talk a little bit about just, you know, from FAIR's research or your personal experience, what effects does it have on, on quality of life generally?
1: When we talk about quality of life, one of the things I like to highlight at the beginning is that it is an urgent, unmet medical need for innovative treatments and food allergy. And it's one reason I was so excited to be invited to this podcast, because I believe that companies at Bio are on the leading edge of helping to solve these problems. You know, the standard of care has always been avoidance, and that drastically impacts patient quality of life and results. And because there's a psychosocial burden for patients and families is they're in constant fear of Accidental exposure to an allergen and the need to always be ready to have access to their emergency medical medications at all times. And patients need this medicine in order to accommodate their unique needs. And what works for one patient may not always work for another patient. And so there there is an incredible burden. For example, uh, over the past week, uh, we received a note that a 31 year old man uh, in the Midwest died due to accidental exposure of peanut butter. This is a 31-year-old man who is someone who is a a very high-level individual in the field in which he served. Obviously, from what we could see, practiced avoidance, was extremely careful, and yet he died. And so it is life-threatening. There's a lot of misunderstanding about how serious this condition is and how difficult it is even with ever vigilance to always know that you're going to be safe. So when a mom sends her child off to a sleepover, or they go to summer camp, or you're sending your child off to college, the anxiety levels are extremely high.
0: As such, and rustigy explained earlier, allergic reactions are triggered by specific proteins in foods.
3: The second one is detoxification. So we decided also to express the proteins because these proteins are actually kept in the plant for its own good like so when the plant germinate it actually degrade these proteins into small pieces and release the amino acids which are the building blocks of proteins to actually carry out its own development so the grain also contain the proteins that can actually degrade them into small or finer elements we don't have uh, those proteins like so we cannot process these proteins completely in our gut so s- what happens in like the individuals which are sensitive they they have a leaky intestine so these small pieces which are not processed get into our blood stream and cause the immune reaction
0: using conventional breeding genetic modification and gene editing such team at clemson university is making progress on altering these proteins in wheat.
3: However, like the other individuals, they also cannot process it. Like, I mean, if I'm a healthy individual, I have no sensitivity for wheat, but I cannot also completely process. So the problem is not the processing, Is like if it gets into the bloodstream or if it does not get into the bloodstream. So we excrete them out. So bioavailability is the thing. So bioavailability of these proteins is quite low because they cannot be completely processed. There are many different ways to get to the the target that we want to get. So we can use like mutagenesis, the old-fashioned way we can treat the grains with the chemicals and then induce mutations in the DNA of the, the thing. That is a conventional method of breeding. Or we can use genetic modification. So we use mutagenesis, we use genetic modification, we also use gene editing. That is a new technology you might be hearing a lot about, like the CRISPR technology. So that's what we are also using. And in addition to this, like we were also screening the natural germplasm. And I can tell you, like, there was an interesting pattern. We observed the lines that were actually derived from the high altitude regions of the world were actually tend to lack some of these toxic proteins.
0: When we come back, we'll hear more from Sarah Gallo's conversation with Lisa Gable on the cost of food allergies. And Sachin Rustigy will tell us how close we are to helping people with allergies experience food freedom. Are you signed up for Good Day Bio? It's the daily five-minute newsletter at the intersection of biotech, politics, and policy. Become a subscriber today at bio.org goodday. In the United States, the Food and Drug Administration is responsible for ensuring the safety of our food supply. This includes foods enhanced through biotechnology. Here's more from Sarah and Lisa's conversation on the relationship between FDA and food innovators.
4: So do you think there needs to be more done by the FDA? I know your group um, works very closely with the FDA and other agencies that are, that are tackling this and trying to help get beneficial products into the marketplace to help um, people suffering from food allergies. But what more could be done by the FDA? Well as we all know the FDA fully understands
1: this dynamic as there're two sides there's the side that deals with food you know regulation and there's the side that deals with the regulatory aspects around uh, therapies and diagnostics and what causes a great deal of confusion today is that those two worlds are actually merging. And so we, we need to uh, really look at the regulatory pathway for medical foods, biologics, multi-allergen strategies, and innovative ways of delivering the food, uh, which serves to desensitize the patient, it's part of the treatment, uh, to the patient. But one of the things that we actually are working with them right now on is conversations around establishing a baseline for what constitutes an allergy worthy of being listed. And we can look at the severity of the reaction because some allergens, like sesame, have a more severe reaction. It's much more immediate that causes that anaphylaxis and possible death, or the quantity of people who have a reaction. And so, on that side of the fence, we're working with FDA and FARP. FARP is an industry funded consortium uh, that develops for the food industry, uh, industry uh, credible information that allows them to to explore what's going on with um, allergenic foods. And so we're building out a threshold data platform that retroactively looks at past oral food challenges and allows us to look at what, at what point did patients react to the allergen? because we actually want more specific data that allows us to both diagnose the disease as well as understand what thresholds of consumption kick off the severity of the disease. So for us, the FDA conversations around fast-tracking diagnosis, uh, diagnostics, and therapies secondarily is removing barriers and looking at the entire FDA uh, platform and structure because we don't think the current regulatory environment accommodates what's going to solve this particular problem. Uh, for the patient and then on the other side is we are working with them on the food and food labeling side of things so we have a we have a fairly comprehensive engagement
0: increasing access to affordable healthy and nutritious foods is a matter of equity and if we want to increase access to these foods especially in historically neglected communities we can't disregard the advances being made by scientists around the globe
3: to actually create a situation where we can remove or minimize the need for keeping a peanut-free or a gluten-free environment because right now it's a very big financial burden and difficulty i believe one of us like is a parent of a child like so they they know firsthand like how difficult it is it is to actually keep track of everything So we can actually reduce that risk of having an exposure, And even if we get exposed to like the severity of the reaction by creating like the lines which are reduced immunogenicity.
0: Emily Brown dreams of what a life without allergies would be like for her kids.
2: I mean, I think it would be life-changing. They could eat peanuts and not be triggered. That would definitely be life-changing, life you know, for them to be able to have these foods that are so integral in our community and within the cultural diets of our community. You think about how ubiquitous peanut butter is for young children. And so I think it would be very meaningful for them.
0: In recent years, medical professionals have been using exposure therapy, mostly in small children, to increase tolerance of foods to which patients are allergic. Trained professionals feed microdoses of allergens to the patient and gradually increase the dosage to combat allergic reactions. In our conversation with Suchin Rustigy, he explained how biotechnology is helping to make this process more precise
3: a mild dose in supervised settings that dose will be determined by an expert like a physician so they can determine like what dose does not cause difficulty and then they gradually increase that dose so right now they are doing it like with a, a conventional peanut or a conventional wheat but that could be done with like a reduced allergenicity or reduced immunogenicity thing like and there you can soon like get her to a larger dose because it already is reduced in the content of those allergens.
2: So why are GMOs bad? They're not. They just aren't, not intrinsically, and certainly not for your health. We've been eating them for decades with no ill effects, which makes sense because a genetically modified organism is simply an organism like any other organism that produces tens of thousands of proteins, but one or two of them were proteins that were chosen specifically by us humans. Genetic engineering is necessary for the continued success of the human experiment here on planet Earth. Just like the advent of nitrogen fixing allowed for more fertile fields that saved millions from starvation, the fruits of genetic engineering, literally, will help us face the significant challenges of a world with more and more people and a climate that is less and less stable.
0: Genetically modified organisms, or GMOs, have been around since the 1990s. Despite the fear, GMOs are safe, and no peer-reviewed scientific study has found otherwise. In fact, through genetic modification and gene editing, we can develop plants that are healthier, more resilient, and environmentally friendly. Bio is committed to transparent dialogue around biotechnology in every aspect of our life, including in our food. Here's more from Sarah and Lisa's conversation.
4: Do you think that there are specific questions that biotech innovators can start thinking about now as, as they're developing and as they're doing outreach around, um, around products to deal with, with food allergies? Are there certain things that they should be prepared to answer from the patient community or, or from groups like yours so that we can start that education process now? I am so excited you
1: asked this question because I worked a lot on the GMO issues back in 2009 to 2016 and what we don't want is for some misinformation to get out and all of a sudden to begin to experience the the fears that we have As it relates to GMOs. And so the most important thing is to begin that education process and create demand. You know, what you want is to create an education process where you're working hand in hand with groups like FAIR and getting the message out to patients, educating them on what the potential is, and literally have them demanding the solution when it comes to market. They understand it, they're not fearful of it. And in fact, they come to recognize the incredible transformation it could have for their lives.
4: So you talked a little bit about some of the research and, and uh, challenges that you all um, oversee at FAIR. What solutions do you see so far or which ones most excite you? Or is there anything that um, you know researchers are working on that you want to make sure that listeners are aware of?
1: Well, I'm so glad you asked because this, I, I, you know, having been in tech um, and in the food space and working with agriculture pretty much for the last 25 years, I find this to be one of the most exciting times in innovation. FAIR has launched a program called SEED, which is a research effort that's going to determine whether early dietary introduction of eight potentially allergenic foods reduces the prevalence of allergies to children uh, and by introducing it to babies between four and six months old, early and often for two years. And that is, that's incredibly exciting. We have seen great results from the LEAP study, which was co-funded by FAIR, uh, that introduced peanut to babies. Now that LEAP study has been um, in market, I would say for five years, this is its fifth anniversary, we are seeing a precipitous drop in peanut allergies as a result. And then finally, what I would say is the area that I know your members are working on, uh, which is that we have allergen immunotherapies in multiple forms that people are working on today, shots, drops, powders, patches which involves exposing the immune system to what the patient is allergic to, which is very different from other traditional um, medicine approaches. And it's again, for this reason and many other reasons why the traditional regulatory approaches to evaluating it are not appropriate to apply. So there are a lot of exciting things that your members are doing in this field. We've got people who are looking at shots, drops under the tongue, powders, lots of exciting uh, ways of both delivering the allergen to the patient's immune system. Secondarily, is uh, we're talking about the introduction of food. I mean, that's that's the people talk about food as medicine all the time. And I've been in the food and beverage world now for fifteen years, and. I truly believe in the food allergy space, we've proven food as medicine through the early introduction of proteins to a baby, you're talking about off the shelf proteins that you're delivering to a baby to potentially reduce their uh, getting a food allergy. Even when we're talking about these products, you're talking to many cases. You know, some form of, of a food, right? That's what it is. And medically tailored meals. So, you know, food allergies is really on the leading edge of food as medicine. But we have to clearly define it because all of the work that I'm talking about is also backed up by a clinically based research. Uh, we're working closely with the FDA. We talk to NIH all of the time. It's really important for innovators. And I lived in Silicon Valley for 15 years. And sometimes they dismiss Washington. As we talked about with gene editing, it's really important to start working with the regulatory environment and the government very early on, as well as the patient groups, to basically get the marketplace ready to receive the products that you're creating.
0: We asked Sachin if he felt there might be resistance to products developed through biotechnology.
3: I won't say like it's a complete resistance because so far, like most of the people that I met, they understand and it is not the problem. I mean, changes are taking place. Like even I can tell you, like in Argentina, recently the genetically modified wheat has been approved. And that was the first of its kind, like because uh, nowhere in the entire world, like a genetically modified wheat is actually uh, approved. But that's a good move. I think like, it's just like the the need and then the people are realizing, like since the environment is changing and these um, crops like especially wheat is very well adapted. Like it can grow in very diverse environments from Scandinavia to in African nations. You can imagine like, I mean, this has a strains which can tolerate heat uh, drought and many other problems that we might experience in future. But like uh, the people are slowly understanding it is important and we uh, have to be adaptive of all technology that exists today including genetic modification so we can actually meet the needs of future
2: so i think biotechnology could play a key role in either reducing food allergies or helping people overcome their allergies through you know different various therapies and treatments that are emerging like all things you know i i believe you know it's going to take Uh, innovation and really the community coming together to really discover what works best for most people. And I think allergies are so individual. I think, you know, there may not be one therapy that works best for everyone, but there may be a host of different treatment options where people may be able to choose what works best for them. Um, But I am optimistic that you know, the individuality and the diversity of biotech uh, industry will be helpful in determining, you know, a future free from fear of food.
0: Do you or someone you know have food allergies? You can learn more about safe and healthy food at food dot org. Thank you to all of today's guests. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and or review this podcast and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at I Am Biotech, and subscribe to Good Day Bio at bio.org slash good This episode was developed by executive producer Teresa Brady and producers Connor McCoy, Cornelia Poku, and Marilyn Sawyer. Sound design and mixing by Jess Fenton theme music created by Luke Smith and Sam Brady. On our next episode, we share two inspiring patient stories that illustrate the great lengths people will go to to fight for themselves and the ones they love. See you in a couple of weeks.